morning. I am going to be reading the sermon text today, which is 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 through 3, 5. So it says that we're starting um, at verse 14 in the bulletin, but we're going to be backing it up to verse 13. And that is pages 986 and 987 in the Pew Bibles. So once again, it's uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 through chapter 3, verse 5. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God and opposed all mankind, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. This is the word of the Lord. This morning we're back to our summer series in the books of First and Second Thessalonians, and it was a real treat, I think you'll agree with me, to hear from our friends Ed Moore and Logan Howard these last couple of weeks as they kind of opened up for us uh, a couple of books in the Old Testament that we don't often uh, get into, uh, what a treat that was. But today, we're back in these letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to these newly planted churches in the city of Thessalonica. And the title that we've given to this series is Faith, Hope, Love. And our passage today has us focusing on the first in that holy triad, uh, it has us focusing on faith. And really, that's been the main idea so far in this letter. It's the newfound faith, you know, the, the life-transforming faith of the Thessalonians that Paul uh, has been writing about. It's that newfound faith that has filled Paul with such joy. It's the, it's the subject, it's the basis for all of his um, effusive thanksgiving to God in prayer that fills these uh, these early chapters and uh, 
he, he's just rejoicing as he thinks about, as he remembers how the Thessalonians believed and received the gospel that was preached to them. How the Spirit attended that word that the apostles preached, that they heard. The Holy Spirit attended that word and joined it with power uh, so, so that it would work true conviction and change in the hearts of the hearers. Um, how the how the Spirit really um, created new life as a result of that word being preached. And uh, the, the, the result here was genuine conversion. These Thessalonians turned from serving idols to serving the one true and living God. It's a wonderful thing to, to see happen. And you can, you know, Paul, his joy in all of this is just coming out as he writes this letter to them. And I think you can um, track with Paul. I think you can understand how Paul feels because wouldn't you agree that there is nothing like that in the whole world? You know, the, the birth of faith in the human soul, that's the most beautiful thing that you could ever experience for yourself or, to, or witness in someone else. You know, think back to your own conversion. Think back to that time when, you know, one of your children wanted to talk to you about inviting Jesus into their heart, told you that they wanted to live for the Lord. And you can't even describe that joy. That, that's the most beautiful thing, I think, in the whole world. A couple of weeks ago, I met this young lady at a, at a boat launch on the south end of Honeyoy Lake. And she, she was with a program... Um, that seeks to prevent the spread of invasive plant species, you know, from lake to lake. So she had a, a table set up and, and she was checking all the boats and kayaks, it turns out, for, um, for weeds that may have hitched a ride uh, on a prop or something to another lake. And I saw an open Bible on, on her chair behind the table. And in our ensuing conversation, she told me how Lately, even though she had been steeped in science and evolution, she strangely had felt compelled to investigate Christ. And how she had started attending a church in the area, and she was attempting to describe for me the indescribable peace that she had very recently come to experience. And I got to tell you, that, that made my heart leap. And not just then, but like every day since then, I've been thanking the Lord for his work and praying for my new friend. And I, I'm just here to tell you, there's nothing more beautiful and precious than the birth of faith. But faith is also very fragile, isn't it? I don't know if you've seen any of these wilderness survival shows um, on TV. There's all, all kinds of them, but it's like when a, a person or a team you know, of two people finally gets a spark to take on you know, a little bundle of tinder. You know, they're desperately in need of water. They haven't had anything to drink, and they need to purify their water, and for that they need fire. So... You know, they've been striking this flint that they've been provided with, it seemed, you know, maybe for hours, maybe most of the day, they've been trying to get this flame to light. 
And then finally, they, they see the tinder just start to smolder. And, and you know what happens then. You know, like very, very quickly, but very carefully, they, they cover that bundle and, and they transfer it to, you know, the fire pit that they've made with some, with some wood on it. And then they, they just very gently blow on it and, and hope that it's going to grow and, and spread and become a roaring fire. It, it may become that, but these are critical times right here at the start. You have to be very careful. You don't, you don't want that smoldering tinder to be extinguished just as soon as it was ignited. And there's plenty of factors that could easily snuff out that flickering flame. So it is with faith. Our passage today has us considering faith's opposition. The reality that there is much that stands against and threatens our faith. And we would do well to consider some of that opposition so that we might be on guard and so that we might be able to help others who are in danger. And so that our faith actually flourishes rather than, than falters when that opposition comes. So we'll take a closer look at the passage that Andrew read for us. And I'll grant you, it's kind of, a, it's not a, an obvious, you know, demarcation of a passage. Um, it begins at verse 13 and goes into chapter 3 down to verse 5. And from that passage that we've chosen, uh, we want to look at three aspects of the opposition that our faith faces. First of all, the players, the players. Secondly, the purpose and third, the protection. The players, the purpose, the protection in opposition. First, uh, the players. Now, when we're talking about op opposition, I think it's very helpful to identify the main players so that we're not going to be surprised by the source and so that we would understand something at the same time of the strategy that that source will likely use. It's quite common, as you know, each election cycle, and you'll have, to, you'll have to start gearing yourself up for a new election cycle. There's always seems to be one around the corner. But it's very common for candidates to do opposition research. You know, not just to dig up dirt on the guy that they're running against, but to know how they can how, how these people approach different issues and speak about different issues and tend to respond. Or if I could switch the analogy, it's June, and so that means that we're in the middle of the NHL and the NBA finals. And some of you will appreciate that. Others of you will not. But you, you better believe that the Celtics and, and the Warriors know their opponents. You, you have to believe that Tampa Bay and Colorado, they, they don't just know their own game, but they know everything that there is to know about the opposition. They've studied all of the scouting reports. They've watched hours and hours of film so that they're not going to be taken off guard. In the same way, I believe it's important that we know, first of all, who the players are when it comes to opposition to our faith. There are 
there's really two answers here, I think, that the text gives. And one is more proximate. And by that, I just mean that it's nearer to us in our experience. It's more palpable. It's more visible to us. So there's a proximate and there, there's a more ultimate player. Okay, we'll take both of those in turn. So who are the more proximate players when it comes to face opposition? Who's, who's the, who are the people, the players that are closest to us in our experience? And the answer is given in verse 14. Look there with me. If we could distill it down, it says, You suffered from your countrymen. From your countrymen. Countrymen, those are the players. Your own people. The, the main source of opposition for the Thessalonian believers were Thessalonians. And uh, you might wonder if that's a very astute observation. You might wonder what you're paying me for. But let, let me just kind of tease this out a little bit further. That it, the same thing is true um, previous and in other places. Look at, look at what Paul argues here. The main source of opposition for the churches in Judea, for example, were fellow Jews. And so what we have in verses 14 to 16 is a lengthy description of the kinds of persecution that the earliest churches, um, specifically the churches in Judea, that the earliest churches endured at the hands of their own countrymen, as Jesus and the prophets had endured before them. Now, this is a very, I, I suppose I need to tell you that this is a very unpopular portion of Scripture. Many people believe that this is a, a prime example of the kind of anti Semitic writing and sentiment that they say the New Testament is full of. However, on closer inspection, I hope you can see that Paul really is just fleshing out this principle that Christians experience opposition from their own countrymen, whether that's Jew or Gentile, uh, that it doesn't matter. He's just able to speak a little bit more intelligently about his experience as a Jew. Thessalonians are opposed by Thessalonians. Judean Christians are opposed by Judean Jews. American believers are opposed by Americans. Again, I, I hope you don't think that this is too bland of an observation for Paul to make. It might sound obvious when we spell it out this way, but we, we often don't act like it's obvious when it happens. In persecution, we say things like, how could this happen? Or what is happening to our country? In, in the Middle East, maybe. But here in America? And we, we think that we share a common identity with our countrymen, an identity, a bond that ought never to result in such fierce opposition. But that's exactly where we're wrong. Because once a person comes to faith and experiences the new birth, their core, our core identity radically changes. We become subjects of the king. We, we become citizens of heaven. And, and this instantly puts at, us at odds with even our own countrymen. Thus, if you 
have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you ought to expect opposition from your countrymen, from your family, from your former friends, from neighbors and co-workers, from fellow Americans. They think it's strange that you don't flood with them or plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and so they heap abuse on you. That, that's what happens. And, and this is why Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, um, um, verse 26, you know, in, in the context of counting the cost, considering the cost of discipleship, Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and his wife and his children and his brothers and sisters, yea, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's because disciples experience opposition from their countrymen. Now, in considering the, the main players in opposition, it's important that we would look deeper, I think, than that level and understand the ultimate source. This comes out especially in verses 17 to verse 5 of chapter 3. It comes out in Paul's discussion of why it, it, it is that he was unable to return to visit Thessalonica after having been driven out in a hurry because of persecution. And it sounds like this was actually a, a big issue in Thessalonica, the fact that Paul was gone and hadn't come back. And uh, this may have been one of the sources of persecution, of mockery that the church was, was hearing. You know, their opponents were probably taunting them with, with the fact that this Paul guy just kind of left you and never returned. And, and you can imagine the, the, talk, you know, the talk track. They would be saying things like this. I can't believe you guys fell for this. This is what always happens in our city. You know, these charlatans come and they, they, uh, they give you all of their wacky ideas and then they take all of your money and then you never see them again. This is, this is exactly what it is, what it is with this Paul character. And so the, maybe the Thessalonians are thinking, yeah, well, why, isn't, why aren't you here, Paul? And in response to that, Paul is able to say, and I hope you notice like the really highly emotive language that he uses all through here, how much he really desired to be with them. He described his exit from them in terms of being torn away from them and how he and his associates eagerly desired to see them again face to face and how he had made actual concrete plans a bunch of times to make the trip but those plans fell through they were thwarted and finally he, he sends Timothy to them because he, as he says he can't bear it any longer so yes we're interested in hearing Paul's pastoral heart for this group of believers but we're also interested, I think, in hearing his explanation for why it was that he was unable to see them again, despite his earnest desires and in spite of his well-intentioned plans. What happened, Paul? And here it is in verse 18. Look there with me. He said this, Satan hindered us. This matches the language in verse 16. 
which speaks of these human agents, these countrymen, hindering us. So who's doing the hindering? Well, both are. There's like two different levels to the players here. There's a deeper, more fundamental, more ultimate player when it comes to the opposition to faith, and that is the devil himself. Elsewhere, Paul explains that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's where our true opposition comes from. And in his famous fight song, which we'll get to sing in just a, just a little bit here, Martin Luther explains that the one who works us woe is our ancient foe. He's, he's been around a long time. He's been harassing the faithful since the very beginning. And in verse 5, Paul refers to this ultimate opponent as the tempter, which I think is an allusion back to Genesis 3. It's an allusion back to the devil's prime tactic, which is to tempt us away from the word of God and what we know to be true. So this actually leads us very nicely into the second thing that we want to see from this passage, which is the purpose what is the, their purpose, these players, in the opposition? What are our opponents up to? Our countrymen and these cosmic powers. What is their goal? What's the end game here? What are they after? We don't want to be unaware of these things. We don't want to be unaware of their schemes or their purposes for us. And maybe it'll be helpful to illustrate this by talking about physics. I, I hope it'll be helpful. I had, as I studied this pe- um, passage, I had pictures of vectors and stuff in my mind, and I couldn't come up with a, sim- a simpler explanation, so we'll just go with that, if that's okay. You know, physics is all about movement and force and work and trajectories. So just picture in your mind, I'll try to reproduce what's in my head, but Picture like a point with a line coming out of it and an arrow. It's like a vector, but it's got a a, a point on the end. And and picture that it's pointing upwards at this 45-degree angle. Okay, you've seen that, that picture before, hopefully. Now, that rep- represents what we might call the trajectory of faith. So the tail of the vector, that that very first point, is a well-defined point of origin. That's where faith has gotten its birth. In the case of the Thessalonians, as we've said, this is where they heard the gospel, and, and, and by the power of the Spirit, it came alive in them. And then from that point forward, they are continuing in an upward trajectory as their faith is working and increasing. As um, Paul writes in, in chapter 1, as they're laboring in their love and as they, their hope is abiding, they are kind of increasing on this trajectory of faith. And all of this is headed to, to glory, ultimately. 
It's looking forward and moving to the point of that great day, the day of Christ Jesus. And that's why Paul can say in verse 19, For what is our hope or joy or crown or boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. That's the upward trajectory of faith, culminating one day in being able to boast about these people and what the Lord has done in them. But you know that the laws of physics are such that for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. This is what opposition is by definition. It's to oppose that that force and that direction. So, so you're picturing this vector going up. Picture this vector going in the complete opposite direction. You know, in a downward direction, hitting that arrow head on in an attempt to drive it back, in an attempt to hinder it, in an attempt to neutralize it or cancel it out. Our countrymen's purpose, and behind them the purpose of the evil one, is to prevent faith. And whether that means like preventing it from springing up in the first place, or preventing it from growing and gaining momentum and reaching glory, this is, this is what the opposition seeks to accomplish. Prevention of faith. Do you see this in, in verse 16? Speaking of his own countrymen, Paul says that they hindered him and his team from preaching to the Gentiles that they may be saved. That, that was, the, that was the, the very specific purpose for all of this persecution. It's that the message of the gospel would be silenced so that people would not be saved. The, the, their opposition was for the purpose of squashing faith even before it had a chance to spring up. And by doing so, these opposers not only set themselves against God, you can see that in verse 15, but they also, it says, oppose all mankind. In other words, preventing the gospel from spreading, not not giving people an opportunity, a chance to to hear the good news and be saved, is one of the most heinous crimes against humanity that you could ever imagine. And now look at verse 18. What was Satan up to? He was up to an equal and an opposite reaction. He, he hindered Paul from visiting the Thessalonians, his hope and his joy and his crown of boasting, so that he wouldn't be able to, to strengthen their faith, so that they would uh, remain weak and vulnerable. And perhaps... This is Satan's goal, that their faith would come to nothing. That it would just be shown to be a vain thing. Uh, I'm sure I, I've told some of you this story before, but maybe it'll help if I repeat it here. After my grandmother passed away, my grandfather remarried. And I guess there were no fundamentalist Baptist women on Christian Mingle. So he ended up marrying a very Pentecostal lady named Alma. And she and her daughter were like super charismatic. The kind who were 
just hyper sensitive to spirits, whether holy or unclean. And one time when Alma was sick and in the hospital, my mom and my sisters went to visit her and her own daughter was there. And after a while, the nurse came in and told them that um, visiting hours were over and that they needed to wrap up. Well, Alma's daughter was incensed and she began a sort of exorcism right then and there. She cried out in a loud, loud voice, I bind you, Satan, in the name of Jesus Christ. And, well, the, the poor nurse, you know, she, she was all confused. And she had this look on her face like, uh, it's just me. And it's just the, the hospital's policy. You know, you can come back tomorrow morning if you'd like. Listen, Satan is not out there opposing generous visiting hours. He is singularly focused on destroying faith. He wants nothing more than for salvation to be stamped out and for our own faith to come to nothing. That's what gets him out of bed in the morning, if we could put it that way. And I'll move on to our next point, but... But let me first just anticipate a, a couple of objections. Let me try to prevent a couple of emails, maybe. You, you might be thinking something like, I don't really have any experience with satanic opposition. Opposition from my own countrymen, I can, I can kind of see that. But the devil? I, I haven't really seen anything that could be ascribed to his activity. And in response to that, let me just challenge you with the possibility that maybe you aren't engaged in anything that Satan finds very interesting or threatening. You, you still haven't had the courage to share with your neighbors the gospel by which they may be saved. So far, you've only been able to you know, agree with them about the bad shape that our country's in or about how we need to have stronger families and a more competent president. And, and I'm here to say that the devil doesn't find that stuff threatening in the least. That's not even worth his time. Those people that have given themselves to bold gospel proclamation and who have a passion for and a practice of seeing faith sparked and strengthened, those people can tell you lots of stories about Satan's opposition. Another objection that you may have, and I think I know some of you pretty well by now, it goes something like this. Pastor, you, you speak of faith coming to naught, but if God is sovereign, how is that even possible? A, a true believer can't lose his salvation, right? And if God is truly sovereign, how can any plans be hindered? Is Satan more powerful? Is Satan more sovereign than God? Those sorts of questions. And all of those questions are great questions, and they are the kind that you expect from people with good theology. But let me just warn you not to superimpose your theology 
on a particular passage or problem in such a way that the main message totally loses its force. Do you know what I mean by that? For example, you may remember that a couple of weeks ago, I challenged us to consider, just as a thought experiment, consider the consequences of giving in to our cowardice and withholding the good news from our neighbors. Just, you know, consider what that outcome might be if we were to just totally give in to our uncomfortability and our lack of courage. And one way to instantly kill any kind of conviction along those lines is to redirect our mind to God's sovereignty and his power and his plan to save all of his elect, which he most certainly will. And so, and do you see what happens? Like suddenly it, it becomes God's problem and nothing that we need to wrestle with. Probably the most ardent proponent of God's sovereignty and of the doctrine of eternal security is the Apostle Paul. Hopefully you'll agree with me on that point. He, he's the, this is the guy that wrote things like, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. He wrote, the one who God calls, he glorifies. This is the guy that wrote, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. But this is the same Apostle Paul who, in verse 5 of our passage, look there, can say that he feared the potential that the tempter had tempted the Thessalonians and that their faith and his labor would be in, van in vain. And you can't say, oh, Paul, you're contradicting yourself. It, that, that was never a possibility. Because in real time, as Paul is and the Thessalonians are experiencing these things, there, it, this, is, this is a genuine fear. Satan and his schemes are a real and present danger. And, and we shouldn't let our theology, even our great theology, cut the nerve out of how we experience things in real time. If we were to do this, I suspect that we, we wouldn't have the same kind of passion that Paul has. I suspect that our prayers would not be as powerful as Paul's. And I, I suspect that our actions against this wouldn't be as determined as Paul's are. Anyway, more, more can be said about that. And don't get me wrong, you're free to email me. I'd love for you to talk to me about this. And I just don't, in, in case you're worried right in this moment, don't worry, because we're definitely going to land on the sovereignty of God. We're going to land on his power to preserve. All I'm asking is that you don't take a shortcut there. Let's look thirdly and finally at the protection in the, in the face of opposition. And here we're asking, what are some truths that we can know and rest on in the midst of opposition and persecution? The Bible offers all kinds of these, but let me just be content to show you a few from our passage, and I'll group them 
uh, under three headings, if you're still taking notes, three words in terms of our protection. Think about company, think about destiny, think about activity. Company, destiny, activity. Let's just run through these really quickly. Company, you've heard that expression, haven't you? You're in good company. That, that's not just a trite little phrase. That, that actually brings a lot of encouragement when you can look to the side and see the people that are in the same situation that you are, people that are with you. They're, they're, that's, a, that's a good feeling to know. It's helpful to know that you're not alone, but that others have gone through the, the same kinds of things that you have and are currently going through the same kinds of things that you are. In verses 14 to 16, Paul calls these Thessalonians imitators. And here he's picking up on something that he wrote about them in chapter 1. And in both, both places where he talks about the fact that they're imitators, he talks about that in the context of their suffering, in their willingness to be, uh, to, to be you know, uh, willing to suffer oppression and persecution for the sake of the gospel. And, uh, and in the word imitating, he's asking them to, to look at, at models, people that have gone before them. So we could ask, who, who are we to be imitators of? In whose company are we when we are opposed? And there's a couple of different answers here that Paul gives. First of all, the earliest churches, he says in, in Judea, they experienced the same kind of thing. Right? We talked about that before. And then before them, the prophets experienced the same kind of thing. They, the prophets were those who spoke the oracles of God and carried the word of God. And they were driven out of the place. Pretty much every place that they went, people rejected them and treated them poorly and drove them out. The point is that this is how all believers everywhere seem to be treated. And this, I think, is encouraging. You know, the Bible brings us up often to encourage us that we're not in this alone. And you know this, the encouragement that this can bring, right? You, it's, it's, it's encouraging, it's strengthening, it's fortifying to know, say, of, of a woman in the Middle East named Basira who is undergoing great persecution and oppression and opposition for her faith. How encouraging for her to know that she has a family that she's never met, believers in Christ from around the world that are praying for her. And how encouraging for us to know that that sister is standing up firm under that kind of opposition. What a, what a blessing this is. This You're in good company. Uh, and here's the very best company that you're in. The Lord Jesus Christ. Do you, do you see how Paul brings up that this is the experience of Jesus as well? Verse 15, they killed the Lord Jesus. You know that Jesus came unto his own, his countrymen, and his own received him not. He was delivered up by his friends and his family, his own, his own people. And he, he's willing to suffer, not just at the hands of the unjust, 
But Jesus Christ is willing to suffer at the hands of the just, his Father, our God. And he did that for us as he's on the cross, bearing in his body all of the punishment and wrath for all of our sin. What a Savior that we have that didn't shrink from any of his duties. And his life was characterized by constant opposition and all for us. And then how incredible is this, that the suffering that we experience currently can be described in terms of a participation in Christ. That that somehow our our suffering is, is of the same genus and species as the suffering that Christ himself endured. And then how mind-blowing it is it to consider that our suffering somehow is making up for what's lacking in the sufferings of Christ, that we somehow are, are suffering and facing opposition in order that all of this together would be completed. It's, it's amazing and so encouraging. We are in good company indeed not just the not just the great cloud of witnesses that surround us not just the saints of old that line the way but jesus christ himself is calling us alongside of his sufferings to participate in them for his glory that's good stuff let's talk quickly very quickly here about destiny as encouragement so you want to talk about the sovereignty of god That's what we're speaking of when we talk about destiny. When we're talking about what is definitely coming down the pike because it must come because of God's sure plan. And there's two things that we can speak of in terms of destiny. We can speak first of the destiny of the oppressed and then the destiny of the oppressors. As for us, as for the oppressed, Look at verses 3 and 4. Paul's reminding them and us that what we experience is all part of the plan. This is is not a surprise. This is exactly what God has destined us for, ordained for us. Elsewhere, the Bible says, those who seek to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. That's our destiny. That's the pathway, think about our vector again, it's it's a pathway that is going to end in glory, but it's a pathway that goes through opposition. It's going to happen. As for the oppressors, what is their destiny? We see a glimpse of this in verse 15 of uh, chapter 2. Right now, those who oppose the people of God are in, in the process of filling up the full measure of their sins. But make no mistake, God's wrath is coming upon them. Indeed, it's spoken of in the present tense here to indicate that God's wrath is currently hanging over their head like the sword of Damocles. And this is a warning, by the way, to all of those, maybe some, some here today, who are opposed to God and have set yourself in opposition to the Lord and to his people. This is a warning to you. 
of what your destiny is should you continue on that track. And this is also an encouragement, isn't it, to oppressed and persecuted Christians to know that there is no firebomb, there's no honor killing, there's no insult that will ever go unaccounted for and unpunished. God will not be mocked. Let's talk about activity. Be encouraged by activity. And this passage is full of activity on the part of Satan, on the part of those who do his bidding. But if you have eyes to see, there's, there's also a lot of activity on the part of God and on the part of those who do his bidding. Let me just give you a, high, a couple of highlights. I know our, uh, our time's expiring, but let me just, I can't stop without giving you a couple of tidbits here. Look at the activity of Paul and Timothy. This is in verses 1 and 2 of uh, chapter 3. So, you know, Paul's explaining why he can't come and how agonizing this was for him not being able to visit them. And this agony is mixed with a fear that, that their fragile faith was, was being threatened. And that was a real fear. And I, I, I understand this um, because uh, just, I think it was last week, Jonathan brought home a, a white pine sapling that he had been given by his teacher at school. Okay, and it was, you know, had a little bag around the, the roots and it had some instructions on how we could plant this. And Johnny was really excited about this. He even named the thing. Uh, that white pine is now called Pinky. <laughs> and so, yeah, we planted it, um, not really knowing much about it. And, and this thing is, at least when we got it, is pitiful. It's like flopping everywhere, and there's not much of a root system at all. So you plant the thing, and you think to yourself, how does this thing even have a chance? You don't tell Johnny that, but you, 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 <laughs> you think about, like, I'm going to be going past this thing with my zero turn. <laughs> and, you know, even the discharge is going to knock this thing send it flying into the neighbor's yard. Anyway, then we come across these instructions about how you take four two-liter, empty two-liter bottles, plastic bottles, and you tape them together, and you set that down over the sapling. And that protect, it gives it some stability. It protects it from you know, the deers coming and chomping it off in one bite. And, and I started thinking, oh, maybe this thing has a chance. And indeed, uh, if you were to go look at Pinky today, you would see that it's actually taking off. It's actually visibly getting stronger. In the same way, Paul sends Timothy to the Thessalonians to establish them and exhort them in their faith. He's coming alongside them like two leaders to strengthen them and fortify them and build them up so that they can withstand in the midst of opposition. That is wonderful activity to be called to. 
And friends, you're called to it. To come alongside people who are suffering and in the midst of persecution and oppression and to stand beside them and, and shoulder that with them and to support them. Your ministry, that, that activity is so precious. L listen, listen to how Timothy is described here. He's described a number of wonderful ways, but here's my favorite. He's described as God's co-worker. What a title. What a title, working with God, your, your partner, your co-workers with God. And that describes who you are, friends. Whenever we come alongside to strengthen the faith of a brother and sister in Christ, and that leads us to, helps us think about the most important thing here that we might be tempted to miss, and that is consider God's activity. If Timothy's God's co-worker, then the Lord's at work here. The Lord's working. He's, he's working in all of this. You are his project. You, you are, he, has, he has purposes for you. And, and look at how this whole thing gets started in chapter 2, verse 13. We thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. And, and notice this now about this word of God that they've received. This powerful word is now at work in them. There's some activity that God's doing in his people. He's fortifying and strengthening them by his living and active word that is alive in them, such that they can withstand this kind of persecution and opposition and live in such a way as demonstrates the sovereignty and the glory of God and the excellencies of Christ. And friends, that's my prayer for me and for you as we go out into this world, a world that shouldn't surprise us is going to be full of opposition. You can go back into this world this week confident that the Lord is at work and that he is accomplishing his purposes and his destiny for you. Be, be blessed, friends, and uh, let's give thanks and glory to God together.